Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we would love to collect those now and we will be in prayer for you as uh, you have shared with us what's on your heart. We're grateful for that. This morning we're going to look at Mary's heart of faith and devotion in Luke chapter 1. This third Sunday of Advent, as we celebrate with anticipation the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, remembering that birth that has changed human history forever and has changed each one of us who have believed on his holy name. Dustin Binge uh, offers this clear word on the meaning of Christmas. Christmas isn't just a time to make us feel cozy and warm about family, friends, and peace on earth. At the heart of the Christmas story is the truth that the human race is alienated from a holy God because of our sin, and we need a Savior. Without Jesus in the manger, there's no Christianity. Apart from Christ, Christianity is an empty manger. Those called by Christ's name, which is a picture of salvation that God has called us to himself in Christ, are people who are personally related to him in, in a faith relationship, our union with Christ. We are in Christ, and therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The baby Jesus is not only the centerpiece of the nativity scene, but also of our lives. And Charles Swindoll writes, single-heartedness, simplicity, pure devotion to Christ. These are our basics. What should make the celebration of Christmas for us so special is that it is an opportunity for us to put, a, put aside the distractions of this world and say, Lord, with a, with a singular vision and focus, with simplicity and with a pure heart, I long to see you and worship you this Christmas season. Swindoll continues, what blocking and tackling are to football what keeping your eye on the ball is to baseball and not giving up the baseline is to basketball, so devotion to Christ is our Christian life. We love him because he first loved us. And what's remarkable about the Christmas story is to see the hand of God moving in history. We're reminded in the Christmas story that what the Apostle Peter said in his first uh, second epistle. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. So when we consider what happened in the birth of Jesus Christ, we're taken to the prophecies concerning the birth of Christ in the Old Testament. Isaiah said, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Isaiah said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The prophet Micah prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And then you look at the historical orchestration that would put Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. How could that be? They were poor. They lived in Nazareth, a distance of some 80 miles from Bethlehem. How, would they, how in the world would they ever think to travel to Bethlehem unless compelled by a decree? 
from the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, Caesar Augustus. And he ordered that the world should be registered. And so Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, which he, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so God bringing these things together through a decree of a ruler who had no clue what God was doing. And then we could look at the miracles surrounding the incarnation, that God became a man, God became a human being. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John would say in the closing of the prologue of his gospel, um, no one has seen God at any time, but if you've seen Jesus Christ, you have an accurate understanding of what he's like. The skeptic in every generation has said something to the effect, you know, I would believe in God if he would just give a little more evidence. <laughs> evidence? He has spoken to us in a megaphone. If you would have eyes and ears to hear, just look at the creation, just look at his word, just look at his son. We have every reason to proclaim on this Sunday and every day, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's well pleased. Our attention this morning is in Luke chapter 1. I want to look at Mary's song of praise called the Magnificat. The reason it is is because that is the Latin term uh, for, for the beginning of Mary's praise in verse 46. And so I want to, to, to look at this song of praise offered by Mary when she realized that she was chosen to carry the promise she was chosen to carry the promised Son of God, and she would receive a stunning message from Gabriel that the baby in her womb was placed there by the Holy Spirit, and in due time, she would give birth to the Messiah, and she would care for, her, for him and nurture him. And Mary gives a song of praise that I want to take in that I pray would fuel our worship this Advent season. And I want to hang my thoughts on three questions, okay? Okay. If you're following in your insert, like all good church members do, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Three questions to hang our thoughts on this morning. The first one's this, why is Mary singing? Why is she singing? And that causes us to back up in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, and we just to take an observation into Luke's historical account, remembering he is a historian, he is a physician. He's writing a detailed account to some mysterious figure uh, named Theophilus. And we, we live in a world that was created by God and by his sustaining hand, he holds all things together. And so as believers in Jesus, we expect God to intervene in his world. We expect him to visit and reveal himself as a part of his sovereign plan to bring history to a conclusion which we believe he will in Christ. And this is exactly what happens in our text as verse 26 indicates the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Not sent to Jerusalem, the hub of Israel. Not sent to a prominent family. God loves to do things in the obscure. 
that he would get all the glory and nobody could boast. That's why he saved you, by the way. Not so that you could boast, but that you could boast in him of his amazing grace. And this angel Gabriel, who was dispatched regularly, as we read in the Bible, to, for unspecific assignments, came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Last week, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It is perfectly understandable why Matthew would begin with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He begins with a, with a statement of David because any claim to be the Messiah, one had to, to have a lineage back to King David because God had entered into a covenant with David saying that on your throne, it will, it, one will be on your throne forever and ever and ever. And that was fulfilled in the coming and birth of Christ. So this, this section is one of the most beautiful, tender, and touching accounts in all of the Bible. And our text is, as we look at it here, is, is the account of God revealing to Mary through the angel, Gabriel, how he was going to bring the Messiah. And you can understand Mary would have questions. Yeah, but, you, you know, you can just hear they, they, they would come. I, I know that you said that, but could you, we understand that. Her questions were not, Questions revealing unbelief. She wasn't say prove it, which is often the response of many today with a curled lip. Prove it. If there was a God, he'd give evidence. He's got some explaining to do to me one day. It's terribly misguided. We can understand why, as she heard, not only from an angel, but that she would conceive in her womb and bear a son. Verses 31 and 32, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, that the questions would form in her mind, how could this happen? I'm a virgin. What you're saying defies all the biology we know, all of human interaction that we know. How can this be? And not only that, don't you think she was a bit troubled with how, how am I going to explain this? I think so. We're, we're led to think that because of Joseph, uh, who was tempted to divorce her and to set her aside, and the angel came to Joseph and said, don't do that. What's in her is placed there by the Holy Spirit. And so in her conversation with Gabriel, we learn that nothing is impossible with God. So Luke pins the sovereignty and the specificity of God. In the sixth month, Gabriel is sent from God God's sending all the way through the Bible. God's sending and doing even in time. I don't claim to know all the mysterious ways that God moves in his creation, but I know he's sending and blessing and upholding and securing and establishing and leading. Gabriel was sent from God. I was just thinking of how that's communicated through the Bible. In Genesis 45 Joseph said, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on the earth. In Exodus 3, Moses, as God appeared to him at the burning bush, what if they ask, uh, you know, who, who, who sent you? God said, tell them I am sent you. The God who sent Moses also sent every one of the plagues to Egypt to deliver Israel. In Numbers 21, in Israel's rebellion, God sent serpents. In Daniel 6, God sent an angel to shut the mouth of the lions when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. In John chapter 1, 
there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. God sent him. In John 8, Jesus said, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. In John 20, when Jesus commissioned his disciples, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. In 1 John 4, and this is the love of God that has been manifested among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. God is sovereign and he's specific. He, he sent Gabriel at the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy this message and he broke into the affairs of this world in a way by doing the impossible, by choosing to enter the universe through a virgin's womb, by choosing a legal human father who would be the heir of David that in the appointment of time, he would have to go to Bethlehem in order to pay his taxes and to fulfill all the prophecies of God that Jesus be born in Bethlehem. In verse 34, Mary said, how, how will this be since I am a virgin? She was betrothed. She was engaged to Joseph, but she didn't, she didn't say, how can I be sure of this? She was sure of it. God had spoken it through Gabriel. She believed it. And her question was to understand how this miracle would happen. We understand that. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Verse 31, she was introduced, uh, or instructed rather, to name him Jesus. And this is interesting. God chooses the name of his son, Jesus. Why was that chosen? Well, Matthew, Matthew's account says the same thing. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the corresponding Hebrew name is Joshua, which means Savior. The king of the universe is given the name Savior. Why? Why is that a precious name to us? Because in him we know salvation. He came to save us from our sins. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, for there are none. He came to save sinners. And we should follow Mary's example. She believed God's promises and and she spends some time with a relative, Elizabeth. Verse 39, in those days Mary arose and, and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, or excuse me, Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now notice what happens here. When Elizabeth, and we read their story earlier in Luke, they're old in age, and Elizabeth had been barren, and she conceives, and she is great with child, and she heard and the greeting of Mary, and the baby in her womb, which was John the Baptist, leaped. We read that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord, so Elizabeth is recognizing the baby in Mary's womb is her Lord. Why should she come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, I mentioned Luke was a historian. He was writing a detailed account. He was a physician and writing this with great care that this baby, John the Baptist, leaped in Elizabeth's womb when he heard Elizabeth's greeting 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Why is she singing? Because she believed that all the things the Lord spoke to her would be fulfilled. She was standing on the promises of God. Nothing is impossible with him. As we look back in this narrative, we see with Elizabeth, nothing, in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. That's showcased all through the Bible. Job said, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours will be thwarted. With the parting of the Red Sea, Moses said, stand back and watch the salvation of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah said, ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Nothing is too difficult for you. When Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, he walked away sorrowful because he loved his riches. And as Jesus was explaining salvation to his disciples, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, which is really showcasing the impossibility of it all. Anybody trusting in their riches, anybody trusting in their accumulated wealth in this world cannot at the same time know God's salvation. You must trust in Christ and him alone. Then the disciples said, well, goodness, that's that's impossible. Who could be saved? That's the point. With you, you can't. All of your good works, all that you can muster and think that you can bring to the table will not save you and make you right and reconcile you before a holy God. It's a work of grace. Salvation is a miracle. It's a work of the Spirit. It's responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it happens in strange and mysterious ways. Jesus described it like the wind, the wind blowing here and there in John 3. And in a gathering like this this morning, here we are, this assembled group. We're holding up the gospel of Jesus Christ and why he's great and why you should worship him and why Christmas is so special to us. And who knows that if on this day, the wind of his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God would illumine this message to you and you would come alive in Jesus Christ, led to saving faith and trust in him. With man, it's impossible. But with God, nothing's impossible. What can I believe is possible for us? Well, every promise of God given in his word is possible. We emphasize that around here a lot. When you think about what you're going to give your life to and what you're going to believe, that you would stand on the promises of God's word, regardless of how impossible it may seem to you now. James Boyce once said, I feel sorry for those who do not know the Bible, who are deprived of of its comfort, who are shut off from the light of God. We have the Bible We have God's promises. Herbert Lockyer in one of his books said there are over 8,000 promises of God in the Bible for his people. We, We sing that old hymn, standing on the promises of Christ my Savior. Every promise of God given in his word is possible. Not only that, God's plan for your life is possible, even though your circumstances seem beyond hope. Plug yourself, if you can, (laughs) into Mary's situation. She's probably a teenager, and she has just learned she's with child. 
by the Holy Spirit. How do you explain that? How do you understand that? Maybe you have circumstances. You wonder, how, how can God work in this? I'm in a loveless marriage, Pastor. I'm in a loveless marriage. I don't see how it's ever going to work out. What you think is impossible, all things are possible with him. You keep looking to Christ or it's a wayward child or a difficult situation at work or your health is failing or you have financial needs that are great or overwhelming challenges or constant bullying that you, are, you receive or a bad ACT score. How am I ever going to move forward with this? What do I do? Well, you do what every godly person has done from the beginning. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Come to me, Lord. Be glorified in my life. I will trust you. That's why Mary's singing. She stood upon the promises of God. I can't explain what's happening but I believe God and I'm going to stand on that foundation. Second question. What is the content of Mary's song? Oh, I love this. <laughs> what is the content of her song? This is the Magnificat again. That's the Latin for this intro into this song, which begins in verse 46 and goes through 55. And it, it's a song of praise. It indicates Mary's humble submission to the will of God. The whole demeanor of Mary in this narrative is one of surrender and yieldedness to the will of God. Mary, as the mother of God, the bearer and nurturer of the Lord, Jesus Christ, serves as a wonderful model of godliness. She is to be emulated but not venerated. She's to be honored but not worshipped. She bore to us our Redeemer and her life points us to him as our one and only redeemer and intercessor. So what do we note about the song of praise? I would note first Mary's joy, even in her wonder, maybe even in her fear and trepidation, she's marked by joy. And she says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Her joy was twofold. She was filled with joy because there was a baby within her that was placed there by the Holy Spirit. What a message to us in a culture that really doesn't prize babies. She, she viewed this as a joy and it brought her great joy. And not only that, the, the baby within her was the Messiah of the world. Her joy Secondly, was her knowledge of Scripture. As we read through this Magnificat, in verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And he who is mighty and has done great things for me, holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things 
And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Several things come to mind here. She quoted scripture, inferences to many references of scripture in her response to God. And she piggybacks on Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And rejoicing in the Lord, she references Isaiah 12 and 1 Samuel 1 and Genesis 30 and Psalm 71 and Psalm 34, inferences from many different scriptures. It's obvious that Mary heard, read, memorized, and meditated on the scriptures. And when her heart poured forth praise, that's what came out. When you are squeezed for good or for difficulty, what comes out of your life? You don't respond like this by feeding yourself Netflix every night. You don't respond like this by drinking at the fountain of this world. You respond like this when the Word of God is on your mind day and night. Day and night. She had been nurtured on all of these truths all of her life. And this emphasizes the importance of teaching children, doesn't it? She was probably a teenager, 15. She had been nurtured on this like all Jew good Jewish families. What are your children being nurtured? Youth, what are you feeding yourself? If you're going to follow in the marks of this example, if you're going to follow in the footpath of those who walk godly, Psalm 1 tells us that we're to meditate upon His Word day and night. I was reminded, uh, Alistair Begg brought to my attention in a message, um, one of his messages, of the impact of cultural music and images and movies and how they're gobbled up with one popular movie and song after another. And he mentioned the movie Frozen from about eight years ago. And he was noticing how his grandchildren were very conversant in the dialogue of Frozen. And if they didn't know the dialogue well enough, they sure knew the song Let It Go, which you heard probably nonstop for a two-year period of time after it came out in 2013. And this song from Frozen, you begin to look at the lyrics, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Let it go, let it go, go girl. That's awful theology. And in the throes of the challenges of life, do we really want him saying that? Really? Is that what we want them saying? Is that what we want to say when we're faced with temptations and trials in their life? I'm praying that as we grow together in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are squeezed, when life pushes us, 
that this example from Mary would flow from us. It would be the word of God and standing on his promises. Not only your knowledge of scripture, not only your joy, but would you look with me at her humility? One characteristic of Mary shines forth clearly from this, and that is her deep sense of humility. Uh, She makes reference to her low estate in verse 48. I would note to you that she refers to God as her Savior. In verse 47, oh, well, you know, that word save, Savior, Savior, it could mean deliverance. Yeah, that's true. But I think it's here in a salvific sense. Mary was acknowledging the God who is her Savior, and specifically the Redeemer within her womb. There's nothing here or anywhere else in Scripture indicating that Mary thought she was immaculate, free from the taint of Adam's sin. Quite the opposite is true. She employs the very language we would expect of someone whose only hope of salvation is grace. And I guess this is probably the warning that we ought to hold forth, that we should cherish her example. We should affirm who she was as a, as a humble servant of God, but she wasn't a co-redeemer. She wasn't a sinless woman, but one in need of the salvation that would come from the baby that was in her womb. She magnified the Lord. She humbled herself before the living God, which leads to the third question. And it really is the timely question this morning. What's keeping you from joining Mary's praise? What's keeping you from praising God in this way? this Christmas season and for the rest of your life? How do you respond to the revelation that God has given to you through His Word and through His Son? Mary's song is the song of the redeemed. A Savior has come who is Christ the Lord. Christmas has no biblical meaning without God. Christmas has no biblical meaning without God. And we see an absence of Him Everywhere we look this time of year. This is an observation. Just over the years I've lived in Ascension Parish, I've noticed fewer and fewer nativity scenes in people's yards during Thanksgiving. Now, there's not a command you need to put a a nativity scene in your front yard. But I'll tell you this Christmas season, I just said, Lord, I was just in morning worship, saying, Lord, I just... I'm going to do something about that. I want everybody in our neighborhood to know that's the reason why. So when you come around the turn and you look into our front yard, that's what you see because that's what it's about. And I want every, or, uh, every detail of my life to be ordered in that way that Christ Jesus has come. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So what's keeping you from joining Mary's praise? What's keeping you? Is your pride keeping you? You got arguments stacked up in your mind and you don't seem to be able to resolve them? Hey, with you it's impossible. With God everything's possible. Maybe you've been so inundated with trials and burdens 
that you can't see beyond the end of your nose, call out to him today. He's able to do great and mighty things for those who trust in him. And this baby in the, in the womb of Mary would be born just as promised, would live a sinless life, would die a substitutionary death on the cross, would three days later rise from the dead. And the, and the message to this world now, in this age of grace, is that men and women everywhere are to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. What's keeping you from joining the song of the redeemed? I pray nothing, and you would call on him right now. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our praise team is coming. We're going to close our service really the way we always do, and that is to give time to respond, to think through the claims of Scripture, to reorder our life with God's purposes. But Jesus is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And He came in the manger. The angels rejoiced, Mary rejoiced, the shepherds rejoiced. And he has come to extend hope. The issue is, do you know that hope that is found in Christ? There is no other. Would you call out to him right now? To cast the burdens, to cast your sin over to him. To receive him by faith as the one true God and the Lord of your life. Father, we're so thankful for the detailed accounts of your redemption to us in this tender text. We want to join Mary's praise. We want to magnify the Lord, and we want our spirit to rejoice in God, our Savior. We pray that you would look at our humble estate And that, Lord, your name would be magnified in our gathering today. Thank you for your covenant through Abraham, through David, and the new covenant, which is the one that is binding and real right now, and that's the new covenant found in the blood of Christ. It's in your name we pray. Would you lead us in these closing moments to make important decisions for you? concerning church involvement, concerning our relationship with you, concerning our service and our living for you. Would you lead us now, we pray. May we hold nothing back in these closing moments. This is our prayer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.